The next time you log on to your Thrift Savings Plan account, you might notice a new option on the left-hand sidebar. The TSP Loan Tracker is meant to offer participants a step-by-step look into the progress of loan applications. It's one of the newer features of TSP's big update that started last summer. Here with more, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. And let's talk about this feature, the Loan Tracker. How does it all work, Drew? So this is something that participants, if they do apply for a loan, they can see everything in sort of a to-do list of the processing of those applications. So the uh, feature splits it splits up the tasks into two tabs. You have in progress and then you have complete. So you can see a list of what still needs to be done and uh, what is already has been done in terms of you know the processing of that loan application. The goal here is to alleviate some calls to Thriftline. That's custom. That's the customer service uh, phone line for the TSP. So when participants call in, they ask questions about different things. The idea here is you know, let's get out ahead of it and try to answer some of those questions in a more self-service style uh, where TSP participants can see it themselves. This is something, Tom, that we actually talked about over the summer. The Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board described it as a, quote, pizza tracker. And this is a little bit more nuanced than something that you might see from Domino's. You get specifically what is missing or why there might be a delay there. So Jim Courtney, director of the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board's Office of Communications and Education explained more. If you have a pending loan application, it tells you where you are in the process. Has your spouse consented? Are your documents in order? This allows participants to check in at any time and as often as they'd like. I wonder if they can verify if your spouse has consented. Who knows? <laughs> that's that's a different program, all right? This new loan tracker, then, is part of Converge. That's the name of the program that resulted in the new portal that launched last summer, had some trouble getting started. Is it better? I mean, I think it's been making steady improvement. What are they saying now, how it works relative to the launch? There is definitely smoother sailing at this point, Tom. I know we've talked about this pretty extensively over the last year, year and a half, since that program launched, there were a lot of initial issues with it, of course, but we've seen even just in the past couple of months, participant satisfaction. This is something that the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board tracks monthly. It's on an upward trend right now and above 90% just for the last two months. Of course, compared to the initial launch last summer when you had these really high call volumes, hours long wait times for the customer service center, now things are have subsided. They're much more back to normal by this point. So there have been a lot of improvements. Initial issues have gone away for the most part. And now it seems like the board and their contractor, Accenture Federal Services, are trying to you know, update or make smaller changes at this point, but most of the update is is already largely launched. There's a few long-term concerns, at least from some participants. I recall they were annoyed that they couldn't get old data or historical data on things. And the TSP board was saying, well, nobody ever asked for that data when it was online in the first place. So now you have to write in or email them and they'll send it to you. Is this still one of the issues? And are there any other big issues that users say they wish they had? Yeah, the historical question is definitely one that is not going to be changed as far as I know. That was a more permanent change with the update where you can only see going 10 years back. And if you want to get more detailed information, the board says uh, you have to just call Thriftline to get that information. So they have it available on the back end. But just they've said that, you know, in terms of 
the number of people who actually asked for that information versus the lift that it would take to make it available to everyone just doesn't really make sense. So that's their reasoning for, you know, why that change was made. Other than that, you have the very popular annuity calculator that was available for the uh, TSP website in the old version. This is something where I believe it is available once you log into my account, but they're looking at a way to make that available just on tsp.gov. And again, this just calculates depending on what day you retire or when you retire, what your annuity amount would be based on those different factors. That's something that a lot of participants really enjoyed having. So those are some of the changes that are still there. And oh, and one other thing, Tom, that I'll just have to mention is that there is a lawsuit from several TSP participants earlier this summer against the board and Accenture. Not a lot of progress there except for just filing that class action lawsuit against the agency over some of those initial issues as well. Yeah, maybe they ought to let that one go. It's going to be 10 years before they get any results. And then who knows what they'll actually get out of it. The law firms will do well, but you know, what are you going to really get? Beyond the loan tracker, which I imagine for those taking a loan is really good, any other features they plan to add? So this same type of tracker technology that they are using for loans, they're going to make it available to other actions that you can take within the TSP. So for example, if you want to take a withdrawal, you will eventually, they didn't offer a timeline, but eventually this will be available for withdrawals for TSP participants as well. And I'm making that available in my account. But Jim Courtney from FRTIB said it's going to go a step further as well. Instead of participants having to log on to look, the participant in the future, we think, can sign up for text alerts, which will come automatically when another step in the process has happened. Yeah, I wonder if those text alerts will also come when your loan gets in there or the application and then your spouse could see your phone and then they could consent or not consent. I hate to keep harping on that one. And also the board said military members enrollment in the blended retirement system That's going to change, too. What's going on there? So this is something that was part of uh, an update that they gave at their monthly board meeting just last week. And they said that in September, for the first time ever since the launch of the uh, Blended Retirement System program back in 2018, the number of participants in that newer retirement system has surpassed the legacy system for military members. Now, this is a separate announcement from the loan tracker and the other features of Converge, but they said was quite significant as well. They transitioned to this new system in 2018 to try to help military members who may not stay with the military for maybe more than a few years. The retirement pension for the military, for that matter, is you have a requirement of 20 years of service to qualify for that pension. So the idea here when they passed the law in 2018 was to offer at least a little bit of retirement savings to some of the shorter term uh, service members. Now they're seeing, of course, you know, this has surpassed that legacy system and that is quite significant. They have about 1.3 million uh, participants in the new blended retirement system versus about 1.2 million participants in the legacy system now. So that was something that the board shared just last week. All right. So a work in progress, but it all seems to be moving in the right direction. That's right. You know, there's still some, uh, as we kind of discussed, there's still some concerns, I suppose, from the system. But generally, things seem to be at least trending in the right direction at this point. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. 
As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance and I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of 
our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it? And building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision, and it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so... That was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people 
on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career. 
and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.